0: Well welcome not only to Refinery Church, but welcome to fall. It is good to good to be able to wear fall attire again to to enjoy fall sports and with fall came fall sickness and there's a lot of people who are out tonight who are sick, so keep them in your prayers. There are many who have who are not with us tonight because they are sick. They're experiencing that fall sickness, so I'm sure they would appreciate your prayers. Well, as we get started tonight, I want to quickly share a story from my childhood. Um, I, I gave my life to Christ when I was in middle school, but there was many things like I'm sure. I'm sure many of us it's actually what we preached on last week. Last week, you you give your life to Christ, and then you have a lifetime of learning about Christ. You you don't just know everything day one. You say yes, and then you live that life out. And, and that is certainly my story, where I had this moment of. Yes. So I was like, Lord, I want you. I want to learn about you. I want to know more about you. And then I spent many years actually learning what Christ looked like and what that looked like to be a Christian. And looking back at those early days, those early years of being a believer, compared to now, I can see how many things I was misguided on, how many things I didn't understand how many things that Christ had to shove down my throat because I just could not figure it out one of those things that really I really struggled with was my understanding of sin what I mean by that is when I first gave my life over to Jesus I was told that you know everything was going to be great that I would give my life over to him and then that that moment forward things were going to change and they did change but when I heard that, I had an assumption that that all of my problems, all of my my sinful nature was going to disappear like that. And it just wasn't the case. Somewhat embarrassingly, I'll, I'll share, this went a little extreme early on in my, my life. I, I was so desperate to learn about Jesus, so desperate to learn about who he was. I wanted to please him that I was looking for different ways to stop living the way I used to live and now live the way God would want me to live which is good but it got to a place where I felt like the only way that I could stop living in my sinful life was if I was just at church all the time because I knew when I was at church I felt good when I was in the church building I didn't have those temptations at least I didn't think I had those same temptations there was this assumption in my brain that if I was just in the building all the time all of my problems would be away Now, obviously, that's not true. This building is not special. The church building is nothing more than just a location we gather in. I know this now. (laughs) This isn't me saying I believe this now. But middle school me really thought that if I was just in the church building all day, every day, my life would be perfect. Everything would be all right. And I did that. I began serving in our church in every possible way I could to be in the building. The first moments of my ministry, my church life, was going out behind our church building, which... Ironically, I wasn't in the building but I was at the church and I was cutting down trees with a machete our youth pastor thought that was a good job for middle school me to have I took a machete and I went out and I just cut down trees really I think he was just trying to keep me out of his hair so he could work which I get now but then I was thinking like I'm doing something I'm out making a difference they never did anything with that space I cut down a huge area of trees They never did anything with it but to me I thought I was making a difference for me at that point in my life, I had this assumption that if I was just in the building, all of my issues would go away. That, that compromises I was making with my faith wouldn't happen because I was in the church building. And I know that many of you have felt this before. Maybe you don't feel it as intensely as I had, but I know that there is a feeling within all of us that when we're here together, when we're worshiping, when we're experiencing amazing amazing worship together, when we're hearing from the word of God, when we're experiencing what God laid before us, the church, his bride, there is a difference. Life feels different. We're around brothers and sisters who share our values. There isn't that temptation of the world creeping in. There is a difference. But, for all of us including myself there becomes a moment when we have to face reality that we have to leave this building leave our brothers and sisters and go back to work or go back to school or go go back home maybe where you have to now wrestle with the temptations and the issues that stay in those places we can't all stay here no matter how many trees we can cut down we can't all stay here eventually And all the work is done and we have to go home and face our lives and we live in a broken world we know this, we live in a broken world we know that when we leave this building we're going to be surrounded again with a world that not only doesn't believe what we believe but hates what we believe and so how do we deal with that how do we live a life that doesn't compromise what we know to be true when we're living in a world that hates what we believe For me, when I was a young kid, my only answer was just to be in the building all the time. I can't compromise on my faith if I'm always around believers, but that is just not a practical way of living. Eventually, we have to go and face the people who are calling us and questioning us and asking us to compromise what we believe for what they think is better. But we as believers have this command to live without compromise. Which is why we're starting a brand new series tonight called Life Without Compromise. Because we want to answer that question, but not just in in advice I could give, but going to scripture and looking at how God, how people of God lived a life without compromise. And if this is your first time here tonight, this is a great weekend to join us because we are starting a brand new series, meaning that we are opening the Bible to a new book of the Bible. We are opening up a whole new thought about what God has laid before us. Tonight we're going to be in the book of Daniel. So if you have a a Bible with you, I encourage you to open with me. It's Daniel. We're going to be in chapter one this evening, reading together. And we chose the book of Daniel for this series because if you look at Daniel's life, you will find countless examples of Daniel being a man that lives without compromise. And just to spoil it a little bit, Daniel's life, he lives in exile. He lives in a world where everyone around him despises what he believes. In fact, I think he he had it harder than we do because the world he lived in not only hated what he believed but tried desperately to change and strip away his identity. We're gonna look at that in a little bit. Daniel lived a life where he was constantly tempted to compromise in his faith. And yet, over the course of his life, over the course of the book of Daniel, we see a man stand firm in the faith. And I think there's a lot of practical advice that we can learn from what Daniel did that we can take into our world. And I also believe that we're gonna see a lot of similarities from our world and the world that Daniel lived in. Daniel had it rough, and I believe that What he went through is nothing new. We deal with the same things today. And so, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We begin Daniel in a very interesting spot. It's an an interesting way to open the book. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Stop there for a moment. That's a very interesting way to open a book of the Bible. And many Old Testament books open this way, with history. They share historical facts about where we are in history. I love this, though, because it gives us context to what we're going to be seeing. Where are we in the world? Where are we in history? What is happening at this point? It reminds us of something that we've shared before from this platform, which is a beautiful reminder that this book, Scripture, it's a historical document. It details historical events, real things that happened. And most of the Old Testament books open this way because it wants to clue you in on where we are in history. What is going on in the world? If you've ever studied world politics, you know this. You can't just look at one event as its own thing. You have to look at the whole picture. What is happening in the world? What is happening all around the region we're talking about? If we're talking about a country, we've got to figure out well, who's around that country. What, is, what does the politics look like? What, are the, what does the world look like? That's exactly what we see here in Daniel chapter 1. And to, to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to offer, a, I want to say short, it's not going to be short, I apologize, a, a, a summary of where we are in history. But I think it's going to be very beneficial moving forward in this series to know exactly where we are in history. And to do that, I want to go really far back all the way to the book of Genesis for a moment. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced to a man named Joseph, or really a young boy named Joseph. Joseph, if you know, or if you've heard this story, Joseph is the young boy that is sold into slavery by his brothers. They're jealous of their dad, their dad loves Joseph more than they, than he loves them, and so out of... Jealousy. They, they take their brother in the woods, they fake his death, and then they throw him into slavery. So now his parents think he's dead, his brothers know he's in slavery, and Joseph ends up in, a la- in the land of Egypt. He comes by ca- slave caravan into the land of Egypt. And through God's grace and through obedience to God, Joseph goes from a slave all the way to the second in command of all of Egypt. An amazing story, I mean, he really worked the corporate ladder. A pretty cool story when you think about it. But it was all through obedience to God. God would reveal something to Joseph, and Joseph obeyed, and because of that, he moved up the ladder until he became the second in command of all of Egypt. Him and Pharaoh were close. Pharaoh found favor in Joseph. And what we see later on in Joseph's story is a famine hits all, pretty much the whole world. But again, through Joseph's obedience, Joseph helps Egypt stay out of the famine. They have an abundance of food, abundance of water. And because of their abundance, nations surrounding Egypt gather. They come to Egypt looking for food. And in that group, Joseph's family joins them in Egypt because Joseph's family needs food and water. And when they arrive, they don't notice at first, but eventually is revealed to them that their son, their brother... Is not dead, but is in fact basically in charge. And there's an interesting moment for Joseph's brothers. I mean, they assumed he was—he's definitely in slavery. They put him there, but probably he was dead at this point. And yet now they're face to face with their brother who has the ability to throw them into slavery. But Joseph, again, through obedience, forgives them, and all of Joseph's family stays in Egypt with Joseph, and they spend the rest of their days in Egypt. And I tell you that because this is how the people of Israel, the Jewish people, went from where they were originally to Egypt, and over 400 years we see the people of Israel, the Jewish people, go from a family to over 1 million, some say up to 6 million people, all in 400 years while they're in Egypt, For, uh, from a family to up to 6 million individuals, all living in Egypt side by side with the Egyptians. But an interesting thing to note here is that the Egyptians went from being very fond of Joseph to 400 years, not only hating the Israelites, but persecuting the Israelites. The pharaoh, 400 years later, the ruler of Egypt, now feared the Israelites because of how much they had grown. And because of that, he puts them into slavery. And so you see Joseph enter Egypt in slavery, and now you see all of the Israelites, all the Jewish people, following his footsteps they are now in slavery and another few hundred years go by they're praying to God asking him to to help asking God to save them from their persecution in Egypt and God listens and he sends a man named Moses now Moses is the man again through obedience to God comes into Egypt and he saves all of the people of Israel Through plagues that God sends, he comes to the Pharaoh and and asks for for the Pharaoh to set his people free. And after many times he asks, the Pharaoh finally listens, allows the people of Israel to go. And this is the parting of the Red Sea. You've heard the story. I'm summarizing. This is a big summary. Moses brings the people out of Egypt and into the promised land, a land that was promised to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this. God's faithfulness to His people continues, and a promise He gave to Abraham has now been f- fulfilled through Moses. Why do I share all of that? Because the promised land I'm referring to—how the people came from Egypt, out of Egypt, into the promised land—is Israel. It's in what is even today modern-day Israel, and the people of Israel live in this promised land for many years. In fact, for 400 years after they arrive into Israel, into the promised land, they don't even have a king. They only rely on God. This is called the time of judges, where they rely on God and God alone. They don't have a king. But eventually, the people of Israel, living in the promised land, begin to look at other nations around them. They get jealous, and they say, well, God, we want a king. They have a king, we want a king. And finally, God listens, and he says, okay, you can have a king. And the first king, if you look to history the first king of Israel is a man named Saul and after Saul we see a man named David take the, take the throne and then after David a man named Solomon and Solomon is the last king of Israel before we see a civil war break out and this civil war breaks Israel into two nations the northern nation keeps the name Israel and the southern nation takes the name Judah and Judah survives longer than Israel now this is a lot of history, bear with me. Judah and Israel become two separate nations. And 209 years after their civil war is done, Israel is destroyed. The Assyrians come in, they destroy Israel. And then 325 years after their civil war, Judah is finally attacked by the Babylonians. Which is where we see in Daniel chapter 1. The Babylonians come in and they besiege Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. That was a lot of history, all of it is really trying to point to the Babylonians have come into Judah, which is the broken part of God's promised land. Israel, the northern nation, has been destroyed by the Assyrians, now it is Judah remaining, and they are now being attacked by the Babylonians. But notice here in verse two what it says, because it gives us some detail regarding what is happening here. So verse one tells us that the Babylonians have come and besieged Jerusalem, But it says in verse 2 and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Notice that. The king of Judah is given into the hand of the Babylonians by God. God does not stand in the way of the Babylonians taking over Jerusalem. And I understand the political, the geopolitics here. Babylon should have destroyed Judah. This, it wasn't a surprise, the outcome of this situation. But what's interesting is it's not the fact that they were a bigger nation or with a, a bigger military might, it's because God did not get in the way. God had blessed the people of Israel for many, many years, but this moment, God says, You're on your own. They're going to come in and destroy you. And they do. The king of Babylon besieges the city of Jerusalem, and they take over. God hands them over to the Babylonians. Now, why would God allow the Babylonians to destroy Judah? Why would God find that, or why would God choose to allow that to happen? Well, because at this point in history, the people of Judah were not really worshiping God. They had idols that they were worshiping that were far better, far greater in their mind than God. And these two idols were two deities that again, they looked to their neighbors and became jealous. These two deities, Pastor um, David Guzik uh, writes some historical text on this time in, in Judah's history. And he found that the two deities that they worshiped more than God was the deity of Baal, which was a Canaanite god, and Asher. Now Baal, the god that they worshipped from the Canaanites, was the god of weather. Baal was the god of weather. And Judah, being an agricultural nation, a nation that is predominantly farmers, you can see how they might be attracted to a god that is supposedly there to help them with good weather. Think about it for a moment. If your entire livelihood is based on having good rain, having enough rain... A god that produces that for you is very attractive because more rain equals more crops, more crops equals a bigger harvest, and a bigger harvest equals more money. For them, Baal equals a prosperous life, more money. Baal equals money. That was what they were worshiping. A bigger harvest, a bigger income source. Now Asher is an interesting one. Asher's the second god or goddess that they worshiped at this point. And Asher was the goddess of fertility wasn't really what they got out of asher because as we already saw the israelites were very good in the fertility department they weren't having a problem with that it wasn't really about what they got from asher but it was how you worshiped asher asher is the god of fertility so how do you worship a god of fertility through sex you went to a cultic prostitute and you be- that became your life So think about it. The people of Judah, God's chosen people, at this point in history, they have two things on on their mind, money and sex. Can you see the similarities between today's world and their world? This This is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. That's exactly what they dealt with. And God, seeing their idolatry, said, you can have them. We'll deal with this in a little bit. And so he hands over Judah, he hands over Jerusalem to the king of Babylon. It continues in verse three. The king of Babylon has besieged the capital city of Jerusalem. And everything he's done up to this point makes sense. If you read verse two, it says that he comes in and he takes their their prized possessions, their their jewels and their gold, and he brings it back to his land. That makes perfect sense for a king to take another nation's possessions. But then in verse three, we see a very interesting tactic by the king of Babylon. He comes in, he's already destroyed the, or taken over the capital city and he has a very interesting tactic for how to continue taking over Judah. Here's what it says in verse three. Then the king commanded Aspazaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and, a, and skillful in all wisdom, Endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azurah the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. And Ananiah he called Shadrach. Michel he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. And what's interesting here is not what he's doing, but why he's, or it's not how he's doing it, but why he's doing it. The king of Babylon, if you followed along that the king of Babylon has a very interesting tactic to destroy or take over this nation. But it's a very effective tactic. What he's doing is he's taking all of the next generation, the good ones, the the ones with high IQ, the athletic, good-looking, the the ones in the next generation that were gonna make change in Judah, the ones that were gonna keep Judah going. He takes all of the ones with good-looking, athletic, high IQ, next generation, people of judah and he brings them back with him to his land he takes them from their land and brings them into his we see that daniel's a part of that but notice what i read there notice what you see happen here is daniel and his friends are brought into a new land but what happens while they're there is they're given new names they're given food and wine that the king eats good food and wine very good food for that day and age they're blessed with a king. They're given a new language. They're given a new learning system. They're given a new culture. What the king is doing is very effective. If you want to destroy a nation from the inside out, take the next generation and make them yours. Shape them to be what you want them to be. Again, I would argue you're seeing a lot of this today. If you change the next generation to look like you want them to look like, the nation falls. and That's exactly what we're seeing in Judah is the next generation is becoming Babylonians. They're being stripped of their identity. And when they come back, it's not gonna be the Babylonians that force them into being Babylonians. They're already becoming Babylonians. They can take over this nation from the inside out. That's exactly what they're doing. Just for a moment, imagine with me yourself being Daniel or one of Daniel's friends. Imagine this situation happening for your life. Where you one day are high IQ, you're good looking, you're young, you have your whole life ahead of you. I would imagine that Daniel had family members and and friends of their family look to him and say, You're gonna do special things. You know, this was a kid who had high things to look forward to. Imagine you're that person where you are looking towards your future. You're seeing all that you can do. You're a man of God. You're waiting to see what God's gonna do with your future. You're excited to honor him with your life. Maybe you're looking to get married one day, have a family, raise them in your home nation of Judah. Everything's looking up for you. And then one day, a conquering nation comes in and God stands out of their way and they come in and they take over your capital city. And now... Your life that you thought was going to be perfect, you were looking to all the things you are going to do in the next few years, now you are being taken away and brought into exile into a nation that is doing its absolute best to strip away your identity, to make you something that you weren't the day before. That is Daniel's life. And now Daniel is in exile. Daniel is having to wrestle with God to figure out what does my life look like moving forward? everything they're doing is trying to strip away their Jewish identity their identity with God and make them something else that's a tough reality that's a difficult place to be if you're Daniel you're not only wrestling with God because we live in a sinful world you're not wrestling with God because everyone around you wants you to be something other than what God would have you to be everything you are now seeing both within your human nature and within the world around you is telling you you need to live a certain way and it's not the way God would call you to live imagine the stress that is imagine the weight that is if you were Daniel or one of Daniel's friends everything in that moment would point to you caving in and compromising on what you once believed Everything about this scenario would lead you to naturally, I don't think anyone would even fault Daniel for it, to compromise and say, yeah, I'll give in in some ways. The king is having me come to his palace and eat his food. I've got to compromise somewhere. But what we're going to see over the next several weeks is the opposite. Daniel never compromises. Daniel is obedient to God, even in a world that is actively trying to keep him away from God. Let me put this into perspective as we, as we close tonight's sermon. I wanna give you an example. Let's look at the name that Daniel receives. Because again, I said they, they said they gave them new names. They took away their Jewish names and gave them Babylonian names. Let's look at the name that Daniel was given, Belshazzar. That name translates literally to Baal protect the king. Think about that. You're a Jewish young boy with a Jewish name You've been given everything to point towards God, your God, the God. And now you've been given a new name that idolizes the king and Baal, the same God that got you in this mess in the first place. You are now literally named something that points to two idols. And yet, over the course of this book, over the course of this history, we're going to see Daniel, even with all of that stacked up before him, He is going to remain faithful to God. This is what we're called to do. And tonight is an introduction. I'm not getting into a lot of the meat of the book. If you want to hear the meat, come back next week, and we're going to really dive into what happens to Daniel. I wanted to use tonight as an introduction to share where we are and what is happening to get the full picture of what's going on in Daniel chapter 1 moving forward. But this is what we're called to do. I'll I'll end with this this is what we're called to do we are called to be obedient and not to compromise that is just the reality if we are believers in Christ then we are called to live unified with him focus on him and not compromise based on what the world would have us to live it's just the reality and we're not going to compromise here in this room either we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins and because of that we are supposed to submit our whole lives over to God Now, I still am not giving you what Daniel shows us and how to do that, how Daniel does that. We'll get there. But let's start with a foundation. The foundation is Christ. Here's a good good example. A, A pastor of the name of Paul Washer writes this. He says, We must not adopt the world's view and then tweak it to make it Christian. We must draw a line in the sand and stand firm in the radical teachings of Christ and his gospel. We must preach the truth and be the examples of the truth that we preach. That is what we're called to do. Not look to the world and think, how can we make the world more Christian? No, we stand firm with Christ. And if the world is gonna follow us, great. If not, it doesn't matter. We are firm in the Lord. It's not, about, it's not about making them more like us. It's about standing firm in what we already know to be true, that our God died for us. And because of that, We have eternal life. This life means so much less when you know what's coming after this one. So, Paul Washer is exactly correct. We must not adopt the world's view and then tweak it to make it Christian. We must draw a line in the sand and stand firm in the radical teachings of Christ and his gospel. We must preach the truth and be the examples of the truth that we preach. And I'll end with this. The band, if you can come back up, I'll end with this as they come back up for worship. James chapter one, verse two, says, "My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance produce, uh, and, and let endurance have its perfect effect, so that you will be the perfect and complete, not deficient in anything." We are going to go into trials. And the, exam- the example Daniel leaves us is that it's gonna get rough. When you stand firm with Christ, things don't always end well. But that's okay. James reminds us that that produces endurance. And that endurance, it says, and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. When we go through those trials in life, it leads to endurance, and that endurance leads to a more full, holy life with God, with Christ. We must have a a line in the sand. That's what I'm really trying to say. But that line in the sand is the cross. That line in the sand is the cross, that we stand on one side of that and say, this is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. Our trials, they have to bring us joy, because we know it will bring more people to Christ. That is the reason we accept the trials. And look at Daniel's story. We're going to see over the next several weeks Daniel's story makes people wonder. Daniel's story makes people in high power begin to look and say, he's got something here. People begin to turn their heads because Daniel's obedient, even when obedience wasn't only not necessary, but it was so much easier and encouraged to do otherwise. And yet because of Daniel's obedience, because Daniel was not willing to to compromise on what he knew to be true, people began to look different to Daniel and they began to question, maybe he's got something going on over there. And powerful things began to happen in Daniel's life. See, we know, and I'm, I'm closing with this, we know that our God is good. And in a moment we're gonna continue to worship in that truth that our God is good. But what I hope we can leave here is to start off our practical examples is, is we have to live in a way that we know God is good. We have to live in a way where people begin to turn their heads. Because when we, tur- when we have people turn their heads to us, it's because we're doing something different than what the world would have us do. and That's, cha- that's strange for people. It is so easy when you live in a culture that is constantly twisting Scripture, constantly changing how we should live or who we are or what we should be doing, constantly trying to strip our identity away. When you live differently, when you live in obedience to Scripture, people turn their heads because it's not normal. It just isn't. And I'll be honest, it's not normal even in churches sometimes. To live in obedience to Scripture doesn't always go well for us but it will turn heads and our mission is the great commission it's not about us any longer when you say yes to christ it's not about us anymore it's about turning heads about people looking to god and or looking to us and saying something's different i want to know more about it and so as we open up this series like i said it's an introduction this evening it's why i like going through series because we can spend a whole evening talking about genesis to Daniel. Because next week we're going to really dive deep into Daniel, but I think seeing that history, seeing all that Daniel went through, should put it into perspective. This is not going to be an easy journey for him, and Daniel does not catch a lot of breaks. Daniel's life is tough, but what, what we're going to see over the course of this book, over the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to see a man who stands firm. His line in the in the sand is God, and he looks towards what's coming. He looks towards Christ. Daniel's life was all about obedience and not wavering. And people began to turn heads. And I hope and I pray that that is the way we see our mission here on earth. Is to turn heads and live a way that people begin to ask. That is different. Something's different. And I want to know why. Again, we're going to end service tonight just worshiping God. Specifically, we're going to worship him thinking about how good our God is. And I pray that that's how we end tonight's service. That's how we leave tonight as we leave knowing the truth that our God is good. And when we go into the world living that out, people will begin to ask questions. And that's when we have the ability to share the good news with them. Stand with me, if you will. We're going to pray. And after I'm done praying, the worship team is going to end with worship tonight. And we're going to leave here singing, leave here praising, Lord, we just learned a little bit about your obedient Daniel. And I pray that our, so- our hearts are softened to hear the rest of this, this book, to learn more about you through Daniel's obedience. Lord, I pray as a church, as a refinery church, that we take that to heart. Our goal As believers, is to turn heads, to live with a line in the sand, to not compromise on our beliefs, but stand firm in them, so people begin to ask questions. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that we leave here tonight, yes, being inspired by Daniel's story, yes, looking to see more about Daniel's story, yes, learning more about how to be like Daniel. But most importantly, Lord, I pray that we're reminded that it's not Daniel hung up on that cross for us. It's you. Daniel was a great man of God, but Daniel was not you, Lord. And it was only you that was good enough to come down here and take our punishment for us. But I pray that we are reminded of that, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. I pray that that is something that we are so overwhelmed about, so overjoyed about, that you took that punishment for us, that you took that sin for us, that we leave here joyful. We leave here ready to praise you. We leave here knowing how good you are so that when those trials come, as James explains, we are overjoyed to go into trials because that trial will, will produce endurance and that endurance will bring us to the end. We will leave this life ready to join you in the next. God, we are so grateful for what you've done in our church and what you're going to continue to do in the life of those in Ortonville who do not yet know you. And I pray that tonight is the beginning of a series that leads us to go out into our community and preach the good news that you've given us, the gospel that you've produced for us. I pray that our efforts here, that our time here, it leads to more people knowing Christ. Because the only thing we are here to do any longer, now that we know the truth, is to share the truth. And I pray that that is hard, that is heavy on our hearts tonight. Lord, give us the ability to praise you and take our praise tonight. Take our worship. It's imperfect, but it's all we have. But because of your son, we can sit here and give you an imperfect praise because you've done so much more for us. We love you, Lord. and pray all this in your name. Amen.